Israel believes that if Saudi Arabia normalizes, hmm. the Islamic element of the issue gets put to bed. But isn't the Saudi-Israeli relationship de facto normalized? Iggy Azalea sings her song in which she says, God, bring your prophets and bow down to the goddess. Doesn't it tell us that the Saudis and bin Salman do have some level of strategic autonomy? It's not coming from a position of strength as much as it's coming from a position of somebody, a friend who's upset and saying, you don't love me anymore, I want you to love me again. And if you don't love me, I'm going to go and marry somebody else. The so-called Abraham Accords, delivered by the Trump administration and embraced by Biden, has solidified Israel's position in the Middle East. To date, normalization has been enthusiastically embraced by the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan and Morocco. But the United States knows that the prize is Saudi Arabia. In recent weeks, the mood music has been positive for the Americans. It is suggested a deal may be concluded very soon, with the de facto Saudi leader Mohammed bin Salman holding out for concessions before he signs on the dotted line. Our guest this week is Sami Hamdi. He is the managing director of the International Interest. A global risk and intelligence company, he advises governments on the geopolitical dynamics of Europe and the MENA region and has significant expertise in advising companies on commercial issues related to volatile political regions. Sami is also featured as a commentator for Al Jazeera, Sky News, BBC, TRT World and other news outlets. Sami Hamdi, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome back to the Thinking Muslim. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you for having me again. It's wonderful to have you with us. And Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sami, what was the response to the last interview we had uh, a few months back? I think the, the responses were varied. I think overwhelmingly what was the most positive response was that people started to actually look into what's happening in Saudi Arabia. I think the most prevalent response was that for many people, they didn't have any idea that a lot of this was taking place. Or if they did, they didn't know the extent to which it was taking place or even the role in the government in promoting that. And I think where it was quite successful and particularly successful, bihamdulillahi wa fadli, 
I think is that it's created that debate and that space for discussion to take place. Something that I think that the Saudi authorities were very careful to avoid allowing to take place. So I think now that the ordinary Muslim is aware of a lot of what's taking place, I think that's been the most positive uh, reaction. As always, we always have the polarized reactions. Those who say that it's not good to cause instability in the last remaining stable Muslim country. Mm. And you have those who are positive that believe at least that there's still hope, there's still optimism in terms of addressing a lot of the issues that the Ummah faces today. That latter argument, how do you respond to, you know, the Muslim who says, look, I go to Umrah, I go to Hajj, uh, I don't really have much influence in the Muslim world. What relationship does it have with me? Why should I be bothered about what's going on at the very high levels of state and government power in Saudi Arabia? The Europeans used to say that they came for the for, for the communist and I did nothing. Then they came for another element and then I did nothing. And then they came for me and nobody else did anything either. I think it's about being aware of how these trends are slowly encroaching and that today it doesn't affect you, tomorrow it will affect you. The freedom with which you practice your religion today, tomorrow there will be restrictions on it if you're staying idle and you're not doing much about it at all. I think for the ordinary person who goes to Umrah, who goes to Mecca and Medina, I think a lot of it is mainly about intention more than actual action, primarily because the ability to do Umrah, the ability to go to Mecca and Medina, the numbers that continue to go show that Islam still matters, shows that the conscience is still alive, show that it's very difficult to restrict and limit that uh, idea of an Islamic identity. I do think that symbolism still matters. So for those people who say that I can't do much, I think going there and continuing to raise the flag of Islam, raising awareness, even if it doesn't mean sharing the content, but at least being aware and telling people about it, I think all that has a relevance. I don't think anybody who goes to Saudi should feel guilty. I don't think anybody who goes to Mecca and Medina for the purpose of doing Umrah should feel guilty because I think that the reverse alternative is that nobody goes to Mecca and Medina and I don't think that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the Prophet Muhammad wanted people to do. So I think the direct answer to your question, even though it sounds like it's a fluffy answer, the direct answer is to be aware means that at least when you see a wave that eventually starts emerging that pushes back, you know to jump onto that wave and help to amplify it. Even if you don't have the ability to start the wave, when the wave comes, you can be part of it through the means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you. Yeah, that's an interest. So how important is it that political awareness should exist within the Muslim movement? Because political awareness does sound fluffy. It sounds like it's pretty inane. You know, you're not going to do very much with it, but it's just knowledge. Um, how important is, is it to have this thinking about where the Muslim Ummah is and her rulers are uh, in the mindset of Muslims around the world? I think the reality is that when you look at the way societies are made, everybody has a set of skills, a unique set of skills that perhaps are different from each other. And the reason being, I think that in Allah's hikmah, he's made it so that everybody's dependent on each other. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is because you will have some people who are very accurate in terms of predicting what's going to happen politically, and they may be horrible at business. And you have somebody who can make gold out of anything, but in terms of politics, he's politically not astute. He's unaware to how to read the trends and the like. I think it's less about being politically aware in terms of the intricacies of the detail, and at least being aware of where the waves and the trends are going towards. To not be blind to what is happening before you, because to be aware of what is happening before you, it then imposes the duty of enjoining what is good and forbidding what is evil. Mm -hmm. And I want to give an example of this in that if you look at the most powerful and potent force against evil or against these kind of measures, it's often popular protests. It's often people taking to the streets. 
it's often people denouncing. They don't necessarily need to know the nuances, but they can clearly identify when something bad is about to happen, whether it's with regards to protests we see against normalization of ties with Israel, which is what we're seeing today, whether it's protests we see in defense of the Prophet Muhammad and his honor when he's being insulted in France, or whether it's the protests that we see across the Muslim world against the burning of the Quran, for example. We've seen Denmark now, they're about to introduce a law of two years punishment for anybody who burns the Quran. We've, that's as a result of the public pressure and the public protest. Mm. So even if you don't understand the nuances or the intricacies, I think every human being is able to identify what is right and what is wrong. And then after that, it's about what do you have within your means to help to push back against that. If you don't have the time, do you have the resource to give to somebody else who does have the time? If, for example, you have the, the, a popular social media outlet, can you speak out and raise awareness? Mm -hmm. If you're somebody who has the ear of a policymaker, can you sit down with them and tell them the next time you meet Blinken, this is how you can perhaps convince him to alter some of the policies in terms of the way they're doing. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a unique set of skills, and I think that it's about how to deploy that. But the direct answer to your question is, you don't need to understand the intricacies, mm. but everybody can clearly identify what is right or wrong. Now, today we're here to talk about uh, the process of normalization with Israel, which is underway, which has actually progressed uh, very rapidly over the last five, six, seven years. So U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced this normalization talks between Saudi Arabia and Israel. He announced that these talks were underway and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has held talks in Riyadh with Mohammed bin Salman. So it seems that there is a diplomatic push underway with each side uh, uh, possessing differing objectives. So let's start with the Israeli side. Uh, why does Israel want so badly? Why do they want to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia? This is a bit difficult to, to say in a way that is clear, primarily because I think the easiest way to do so is to put yourself in the position of the apartheid regime in Israel. Mm. And I don't want to put myself in that position, but I think it's the easiest way to explain it. Yeah. Let's imagine we are the apartheid regime in, in Israel. Let's imagine we are the Israeli policymakers. Yes. In 1948, we deployed our, uh, our, our population to oust these Palestinians from their homes. Those who didn't leave, we shot them. We took their land. We took their homes. We established ourselves. When they set up tents a few kilometers away, we went to the tents, we drove them out even further, we built homes on those territories as well. When they fled even further into other cities as well, we successfully managed to go in and turf them even more. When the Arab states got angry and they tried to invade in Egypt, Syria and the like, we managed to survive the war, we managed to take the Golan Heights, which is a very important strategic area. It is said that the Golan Heights against an army of 20,000 can be defended with less than 5,000 troops. Mm. They took the Golan Heights from the, from the Syrian authorities as well. They won that war when Egypt came back again. They only managed to take the Sinai, Sinai uh, province or peninsula. They didn't manage to make any real gains with regards to pushing you back or pushing your lands. As a result, since 1967, since 1973, you've been well, King Faisal did an oil embargo. He plunged the, the world into an economic crisis in Australia, in the US or the like. But even then you were still able to expand even more, expand even further. You signed a peace treaty with the Egyptians. You signed a peace treaty with the Jordanians. They're not coming across your border anymore. Meanwhile, those tents that have been established a few kilometers further, you went back and you drove them out even further. You established your settlements. Oslo Accords come in 1993. You've divided the West Bank area into areas A, B, and C. In mm. B and C, you have uh, significant control and influence over those 
particular territories. You can see that militarily you've expanded, but you don't have official recognition of that from the parties that have promised to wage war on you in order to drive you back. You're still protected by the Americans. You're still protected by the Europeans. And it's in this context, 1996, the Qataris come knocking on the door. They say to you, please go to the Americans and tell the Americans to stop Saudi and UAE from invading us because I, Hamad bin Khalifa, have done a coup on my father and the Saudis and the UAE want to bring him back. I'm ready to establish ties with you if you can get the Americans to stop the invasion. The Americans and the French intervene. They stop the invasion. Qatar sends up an Israeli diplomatic office. Morocco sets up an Israeli diplomatic office as well. In 2000, it's reversed. But still, now you're moving towards political recognition of your occupation of territory that you illegally took and that the Arabs and the Muslim world once promised they would go to war to restore the rights of their Palestinians brothers. Suddenly, we've gone now from imposing yourself militarily yeah. to securing political recognition of that territory. But Morocco is not Saudi Arabia. Qatar is not Saudi Arabia. Qatar mm -hmm. is a country defended solely by the Al Udaid military base by the Americans. Morocco is only interested in normalization because of the Western Sahara issue. So you move forward and now you have suddenly the UAE come knocking saying they want normalization of ties with Israel because they're upset with the Qataris. They're angry at the way Qatar tried to wield the Arab Spring against the monarchies. They're angry that Qatar suddenly wanted to become this headquarters of this wider movement that would have come at the expense of the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So the UAE says to the Israel, I want to get to Washington, let me normalize ties. Israel's Donald Trump sees an opportunity. Israel gets happy. They have political recognition, but this is only the UAE. And the UAE is aware that Israel doesn't take seriously the normalization of a country that is the size of the UAE. So UAE says, I will bring along Bahrain with us as well. And then I will bring Sudan. It goes to Sudan where the UAE has brokered a transition agreement between the army and between these liberal parties that want to rule without elections. And the UAE says that as part of helping to avoid the Sudanese vote for parties because they won't vote for you, normalize ties with Israel, that will get the Americans to be happy with you, they'll give you money, you can solve the economic crisis, and the Sudanese will be happy with you. So UAE brings Sudan along, the UAE brings uh, Bahrain along, and then the UAE goes to the Moroccans and says, maybe the Western Sahara issue, they can resolve it, you can go to Tel Aviv and normalize. Morocco says, I'm going to normalize ties with Tel Aviv instead. So the UAE has brought Bahrain, it's brought Sudan, it's brought Morocco. So for the Israelis, if you're sitting there, you're seeing this momentum, this wave, in that I forcibly took these lands. I ousted these Palestinians from these lands. Their 1.9 billion population in the world promised to oust me militarily. They've been unable to do so. I've been in this situation where I have to militarily defend against them. But now those who promised war against me are now officially recognizing my territory. Before they were saying 1967 borders, now they're talking about recognizing every area that I control at this moment in time. The reason Saudi Arabia is so important in this regard yeah. is because even though the UAE has normalized ties, Sudan is a weak country at the moment. Bahrain is a weak country at the moment, often considered, and Bahrainians will forgive me for this, often considered a Saudi proxy. For those who want to understand what I mean, Again, I know anecdotes are bad form. I remember somebody in the comments wrote, if he knows it's bad form, why does he use them? But because it helps to give context. Yes. Those of you who've been to the King Abdelaziz Museum in Riyadh, if you enter, there is a picture of King Abdelaziz sitting next to someone. Mm. If you don't know the history immediately, you won't recognize immediately it's the, 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 the King of Bahrain or the Emir of Bahrain. Mm. The guide who took me way back, this is, we're talking about 2010, 2011, 
said to me, Sammy, look at this picture and tell me if you notice anything. So I'm looking at the picture and it's King Abdelaziz sitting with the Emir of Bahrain and they look like brothers and they're sitting with each other. No, no, Sammy, look carefully. And I'm looking at the picture and they're sitting in their tribals. Sammy, look, come on, you should be, notice something. I said, Akhi, I have no idea what I'm looking at, tell me. He said, the King of Bahrain is sitting lower mm. than the King of Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. because we are the big brother in this region. That's the context of Bahrain is often seen as a proxy. But mm. for the Israelis, going back to the point, UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, Morocco only normalized because of Western Sahara, Sudan only normalized for money, Bahrain is a proxy, UAE is not really Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia, the land of Mecca and Medina, given that the Muslim world kept saying it's an Islamic cause, that the Palestinians have an Islamic right to liberation, that Muslims, whether they're Arab or not, resonate with the Palestinian cause, that it is the Islamic symbolism that means that the Palestinian issue, despite 1948 and the Nakba, still to this day, every Palestinian, or if you go to the mosques, they make dua for Palestine. The Israelis believe, whether rightly or wrongly is irrelevant, that if they can get the land of the holy mosques, the land of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, the land of Mecca and Medina, to come out and say, we recognize the legitimacy of Israel over the lands that it has taken from the Palestinians, mm. then the Israelis will turn around and say, look, the followers of your Quran, the followers of Islam, have said that we are legitimate, that these lands we took, we didn't take them illegally, that they've recognized us now. And Israel believes that if Saudi Arabia normalizes, mm. the Islamic element of the issue gets put to bed. I think they're wrong in this, but they believe that Saudi Arabia would be the end of this idea of Islamic Palestinian cause. But isn't the Saudi-Israeli relationship de facto normalized? There is this uh, axis between Saudi Arabia and Israel in the region, and uh, the two countries enjoy very strong diplomatic relations. So why formalize it? What's the difference between the de facto relationship and having something formal? I disagree with the notion that they have strong diplomatic ties or that the ties are in fact the de facto. I think if you're talking about bin Salman's era, the Saudi crown prince, mm. certainly there's been an unprecedented drive towards normalization. In that I mean we've seen that Israeli teams are now able to enter Saudi Arabia with Israeli passports to participate in sports events such as the Dakar rally, which in 2021, we saw the Israeli flag and the national anthem being raised at the eSports International Event or eSports World Cup only a few months ago. We we're recording this in August 2023, mm. but we saw the Israeli national anthem being played. We saw Israeli official delegations or unofficial delegations in Medina recording themselves saying they're planting the tree again mm. in Medina. That doesn't happen without government consent. We've seen uh, Israeli, we saw Netanyahu leak that he had gone to Saudi Arabia in 2021 or 2020 to meet with Mohammed bin Salman, the Israeli officials denied, the Israeli government denied it, or Netanyahu's government, Saudi, the bin Salman's office denied it. But Benny Gantz in a speech said, the ones who leaked the details of the, of the secret flight have acted irresponsibly. Members of Netanyahu's party went to the radio confirming <laughs> that Netanyahu had met uh, Mohammed bin Salman as well. In bin Salman's time, we've seen this unprecedented push, but I don't think it was the case of de facto strong diplomatic ties before bin Salman. And I think one of the greatest proofs of this is even by the admission of the Washington Post. If you look at, there is an article from 2001, 2002 about the moment when Saudi and US relations were about to break, which is when the second intifada took place in 2000. 
And Bush came out with a speech. Again, this is the Washington Post article talking. We all know the story, but there's no problem repeating it. Mm. In that King Abdullah, the story goes, King Abdullah is sitting in his palace mm. and he's watching the TV. Mm -hmm. And he's watching George Bush give his speech mm. in which George Bush suggests that the blame for the Intifada is on the Palestinians, not the Israelis. And the Washington Post, based on the, re the, the sources from the Saudi officials say, King Abdullah, quote, went bananas. Mm. And he immediately ordered his ambassador to register a protest to Bush and he canceled the bilateral military meetings that were supposed to take place with the US. The Bush administration was led to believe in the events that took place afterwards that the Saudi king was on the verge of cutting relations with the US. King Abdullah informed Bush, King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz of Saudi Arabia, that this is the turning point in Saudi-US relations, that we will cut ties with you because of this outrage that you've done with regards to the issue of Palestine and Israel. And yes, Arafat is on record as actually stating that King Abdullah's rage is what led to the concessions that the US made later in order to secure the peace after the Intifada. Mm. The reason why I mentioned that story is because what leads to Saudi Arabia softening its approach from that hard lashing out by King Abdullah in 2001 and 2002 is not the Americans or the Israelis, it's Osama bin Laden, it's Al-Qaeda who end up taking those planes and bombing the Twin Towers and hitting the Twin Towers in a way that sends, that gives America the perfect excuse to start considering invading the region and invading countries in the region, which they ended up doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. That single move made by Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda completely flipped the leverage that the Muslim world had on the Americans on its head. What ended up happening was the Americans went from being terrified that the Saudis were going to cut ties to suddenly entertaining the prospect of invading Saudi Arabia. There is a leaked recording that the Qataris have not denied by the former Qatari Prime Minister Hamad bin Jassim in 2003, in which he states Hamad bin Jassim that he sat with American officials and they discussed how to split Saudi into five different states and that the, the pretext for invading Saudi would be the support of terrorism as a result of what Al-Qaeda did on 9-11. That after Iraq, the, if you, anyone listening to the recording, Hamad bin Jassim says that after Iraq, Saudi Arabia is next. Mm. And if you consider where the planes took off with regards to attacking Iraq, they took off from Qatar, they took off from the UAE. In other words, that the US would not invade solely with its own troops. It would be able to depend upon Qatar and depend on the UAE in its invasion of Saudi Arabia. What we saw was King Abdullah or the Saudis suddenly reeling. What Bin Laden did was where King Abdullah had the Americans reeling to rescue the relations with Saudi. What Bin Laden did was he had the Saudis reeling to try to prevent any imminent invasion. When people say that Saudi supported the invasion of Iraq, Saudi did it because they knew that if they didn't do it, they were next and that it would be Muslim states supporting that US invasion of Saudi Arabia. And when we see Saudi from 2003 onwards having a stance in which we believe we, we would have liked it to be stronger, I think people also need to put into context that the damage that bin Laden did and that Al-Qaeda did was not just in terms of its terrorist activities with regards to killing Muslims or indeed it was in the way in which they obliterated the leverage mm -hmm. that many of these Muslim states who when they were able to exert it in favor of Palestine, they were no longer able to do so because suddenly the language no longer became one of Oslo or Palestine-Israel, it became one of war on terrorism. 
with us or against us. Those in Afghanistan know exactly, when you look at the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Afghanistan was not because the Taliban were harboring Al-Qaeda or the like. The invasion of Afghanistan, if anybody who reads the extracts of the relation between the Taliban and the Bin Laden can see that the Taliban did not like Al-Qaeda, that the head of the Taliban did not like Osama Bin Laden, that he considered him a burden, that he didn't like the activities that he was doing in Afghanistan. That didn't matter to the Americans, even though they knew it, they still invaded Afghanistan. So when people consider, or people listening will think, would Americans really have invaded Saudi Arabia? The belief in Saudi was the Americans would have invaded that the Qataris would have welcomed splitting Saudi into five states, that the UAE would have allowed planes to take off from the UAE. And in fact, before bin Salman comes to power, one of the arguments that the UAE uses to help the Americans agree to bin Salman coming to power is by insisting that bin Salman is coming to power to dispel the ideologies in Saudi Arabia that are at the root of extremism. In other words, UAE is using the same argument that the Americans were contemplating using against Saudi Arabia to get American support, suggesting UAE would have gone along with this argument as well. Mm. So when we're looking at going back to your question, yeah. the de facto relations between Saudi and, 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 and Israel, I, don't, I think if there were de facto relations, and certainly there was communications, yeah. the Israelis were, uh, were under no illusions that these relations were because the Saudis disliked them, resented them, and only out of necessity. But in bin Salman's time, there is the assumption that bin Salman is truly considering normalization, that we're seeing this unprecedented move. So I would say that in terms of what would be different, what would be different is that Saudi Arabia would go from a country that was reluctantly talking to Israel because its terror has an existential threat breathing down its neck as a result of bin Laden's actions. Mm. The, what would be formalized is a new age of thinking from bin Salman which is that Israel is here to stay. None of us are bothered to go and rescue Palestine. There are benefits to be gained from this. This normalization of ties would be one, not one that is done for just personal interest, but one that truly changes the landscape and entrenches Israel as an entity. Now we hear from the Saudis, but uh, there is a commitment uh, to the Palestinians uh, if a deal is to be signed with, uh, with Israel. Uh, how do we tie that into Netanyahu's governments lurch to the right. We know that uh, the former Mossad chief likened uh, his coalition partners to the Ku Klux Klan. How do we uh, connect or reconcile the fact that Netanyahu has domestic problems and Saudi Arabia are pushing for some form of Palestinian uh, rights in exchange for normalization? Umar al-Khattab narrated that the Prophet said Every act has an intention and to every man that which he intended. Bin Salman's pursuit, it, actually let's start with this way. At the time that we're recording, late August 2023, mm. there are huge protests taking place in the Libyan capital Tripoli. Yeah. Why? Because the Libyan foreign minister, uh, the, uh, the Israeli foreign minister Eli Cohen announced the day before this interview that he had met with the Libyan foreign minister in Rome mm. and that the topic of normalization, of course, was discussed. So the Libyans are furious with this. Libyans, of course, are renowned in their history for supporting the Palestinian cause. Associated Press report that the CIA directors, William Burns, met with the prime minister, Abdel Hamid al-Dabeba, and that normalization was also discussed. But what Associated Press reports, or what analysts are, are reporting, is that Dbeiba said to them that even if I am not against normalization, I am worried about the public backlash. I would need something to help me tackle the public backlash. The reason why I say this is because 
the Palestinian concessions or the concessions for Palestine that bin Salman is pursuing is in this context. If I normalize with you, if I, Muhammad bin Salman, normalize with you, mm. there's going to be a huge backlash from the Muslim world. I am not the UAE. I am Saudi Arabia. I am the custodian of the two holy mosques of Mecca and Medina. If I normalize with you, you have to give me something mm. through which that I can go to Muhammad Jalal and to Samuel Hamdi and to everybody else in this room mm. and say to them, look, I normalize with Israel, but look what I got for the Palestinians. Right. And Anthony Blinken, two days before this interview, actually tweeted, oh, sorry, the Times of Israel published an article in which Blinken reports that Blinken has told the Israelis that bin Salman needs something to show to the Muslim world. There has to be concessions on the issue of Palestine in order to ensure that Saudi can normalize ties with Israel. Blinken concurs that bin Salman needs something on the issue of Palestine to go to the Muslim world and say, yes, I've normalized with Israel, but look at what I achieved for the Palestinians. Mm. That's why when Netanyahu was asked by Bloomberg, and he was asked, uh, to, uh, but if you're not willing to give concessions for Palestine, how can you expect any normalization to take place? Mm. And Netanyahu smirks and, say, and says, really, I, I think you should know. Palestine is not mentioned as often on the table as, as you think it is, like wow. in these negotiations really? with the Saudis. Like, mm. As in, he's, you need to have a reality check. They're not chasing us over the Palestinian issue. They're chasing us over other particular issues. Mm. So I think that Saudi is sincere mm. in securing concessions for Palestine, but not because of Palestine, more because if bin Salman normalizes ties with Israel and doesn't get anything in return, he's terrified that there's going to be a huge backlash inside Saudi Arabia, which is why many people believe that normalization might not actually take place in the short term. When the UAE were normalizing ties with Israel, the UAE was saying that if we normalize ties with Israel, Netanyahu will halt the expansion into the West Bank. So they weren't even talking about recognizing the state. They were saying we're normalizing and we're going to leverage that normalization in order to halt the expansion into the West Bank. Hmm. And the expansion was halted, but it was temporarily halted. What Trump did was he went to Netanyahu and said, listen, you, in, in, in the American term, <laughs> UAE, an Arab state, is about to normalize ties with you. Hmm. They're ready to do so. Netanyahu, this is a huge win for us. Halt it and maybe you can continue later on. So Netanyahu halts. And then less than a year later, he starts going in and raiding Janine again to try to expand once more. Right. But the point here being is that when we're talking about the issue of Palestine, Saudi Arabia recently announced a, an ambassador to Palestine, I think one of the first in a long time, to Palestine. I think the Israelis were caught off guard, yes. The Israelis were upset about it, yes. The Israelis have insisted that they won't allow the ambassador to set up in East Jerusalem, yes. The ambassador will stay in Jordan, yes. But that does the Israelis are not angry that bin Salman is forcing the Palestine issue. They're angry that bin Salman is putting his foot down and saying normalization is dependent upon these concessions. And Netanyahu, this isn't about Palestine. This is about me. If you're asking me to compromise my position, I need, to, I need something to show the Muslim world. And Netanyahu's response is, yeah, bin Salman, I'm giving you unfettered access to Washington. I'm giving you unfettered access to Congress. I'm giving you your rehabilitation into Washington. That should be enough. Don't talk to me about the Palestinian issues. And Netanyahu's primary issue is that if he does give concessions to the, to, on the issue of Palestine, if he does say to bin Salman, okay, I'll stop expanding into the West Bank, his allies will get angry. Just today, on my way here to this interview, mm. I'm reading that Netanyahu's ally in the radio is saying, we will not give any concessions on Palestine. Mm. 
it's 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 absolutely a red line. And I think this is where the normalization could be jeopardized. But I think that what bin Salman is doing is that he has this plan B, which is even if I don't do official normalization, I don't want to antagonize the Israelis. So even if we don't agree on official normalization, your your sports teams are coming to Saudi. We're engaging on key issues. We're talking about Iran. We're talking about you know how to bring our security apparatus closer together. So maybe these de facto ties are just the way it is. And I think that for Netanyahu and Biden, given that it, there's a time frame to secure it before the next elections, mm. it may well be Bin Salman says that, look, if I can't find a way to present this to the Muslim world, guys, I've proved my sincerity with the de facto ties, but you guys need to consider something for me and you appreciate my situation. But Sami, are you potentially exaggerating uh, the opprobrium that comes from the Muslim world, the anger on the streets of the Muslim world towards normalization? We've already had UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan normalize with Israel, notwithstanding what you said about Libya, and maybe Libya is an exception. After the Arab Spring, maybe there's just an acceptance now that these rulers will do what they want. And there's nothing really that the man on the street, the ordinary woman or man on the street can do anything about the problems, the challenges that come from these oppressive dictators and authoritarian rulers. When Morocco normalized ties with Israel, the, the way the Moroccans managed to temper the public backlash was by tying it to an issue that almost every Moroccan is unanimous about. Many Moroccans will compare their issue to the Palestinian issue and the like, mm. which is the Western Sahara. The Moroccans believe that the Western Sahara is a holy cause. It belongs to Morocco. It's a transgression of Moroccan territory and integrity that the Western Sahara still does not belong to Morocco and that the Algerians are violating the Moroccans by helping the Polisario Front against the Moroccans and that it is a legacy of colonialism that they cannot fathom still has not been resolved. Mm -hmm. What the Moroccans did or the Moroccan government did was that it made absolutely clear to its people. We are not normalizing with Israel because we like the Israelis. We are normalizing with Israel because they are promising to deliver the Western Sahara. Mm -hmm. This is about pragmatism, not idealism. And we already reversed ties with Israel in 2000 in the second intifada when we reversed the opening of the Israeli uh, office, we can easily do it again after the Western Sahara. Mm. And that's why the Israelis refused to help Morocco on the Western Sahara, even after normalization, and instead insisted that Morocco had to host the Negev Forum, which is a forum of the normalized states in Morocco. Morocco kept delaying and delaying and delaying because Morocco wants to see Israel move first, but Israel are not fools. Israel believe that Moroccans are playing them. So the Israelis said, we want to see you more you really bury yourself in this normalization before we do anything. And Morocco's response was to threaten Israel with reversal of normalization of ties. The Moroccans made it clear to the Israelis that given that there's no action on Western Sahara, given that Biden, instead of moving along with the Western Sahara and the recognition, is going to the Algerians and to promising them that he's not going to do anything on Western Sahara in our favor, we may as well normalize ties. And Israel scrambled to recognize Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara mm. as a temporary stopgap to say to the Moroccans, okay, okay, please don't reverse normalization because we're worried that if, if you do, Sudan will reverse and Bahrain will reverse or the like. Okay, we've heard the message. We'll talk to Biden and we'll see how to move along with the Western Sahara. The reason that's relevant to your question is because the issue of the argument to present to the Muslim world is very important. Muslims know that Moroccans are against normalization of ties with Israel. Mm. But when a Moroccan tells you it's not that I like the Israelis, I want the issue of the Western Sahara, the pragmatism 
resonates with something of the excuses that we make for Erdogan in Turkey, for example, where Erdogan expands ties with the Israelis, but nobody's under any illusions that he doesn't like the Israelis at all. That's why this is, imp even when the UAE normalized ties with Israel, the UAE insists that it's doing so on behalf of the Palestinians and that we stop the expansion of the West Bank or the like. It's not about whether the people will actually do it or not. It's about the perception amongst these regimes that this could potentially result in a huge fire and a huge backlash. What bin Salman lacks is an excuse like the Western Sahara, is an excuse like Sudan, which is the lifting of the, the burden of the sanctions. When Sudan normalized ties, the Sudanese who supported it or who made excuses for it said, listen, Israel knows that we don't like it. Israel knows that we've normalized for financial assistance, which is why the Americans didn't release financial assistance even after normalization of ties, even after removal of Islam from the constitution, because the Americans felt this was not a sincere normalization. Mm. What the Sudanese argue is we normalized ties with Israel for financial assistance. The Moroccans say we normalized for Western Sahara. The UAE tells its people that, look, Qatar did it first, and also we prevented the expansion into the West Bank, which is a very weak argument. UAE has the weakest of the arguments. Yeah. Bin Salman doesn't have an excuse like that. If bin Salman is to normalize tomorrow, what excuse is he going to give to the Muslim world? Mm. You're not a weak nation. You have money. Biden is already chasing you. You're wielding influence. Your projects are starting to move, albeit very slowly and not in the manner that you wanted it to. You're talking to Iran about the truth, so the issues are expected to de-escalate as well. Mm. What is the imminent threat that you are facing that would result in normalization of ties with Israel? And bin Salman doesn't have that argument. So whereas the Moroccan will sit in a cafe and argue with you and tell you, Muhammad, I'm against normalization, but at least we're doing it for Western Sahara. For the Saudis, they will have a very difficult time in doing so. And I think that what bin Salman is worried about is not that people will actually revolt, but that they could and that they would have a reason to do so. And that the Saudi population is still at a stage where you might have an insurgency or the like, and the country will be plunged. And that plan from 2003 to split country into five nations, mm. the Americans would gladly do it today if they have a chance. So let's then turn to the Saudis and what the Saudis want to get from it. If it's not Palestine and concessions for Palestinians, what does Saudi Arabia want to get? Now, I've read uh, some papers on this matter, and it seems that it comes down to three issues. Uh, Saudi Arabia wants from the United States a NATO-like treaty, a security treaty on the level of NATO. Secondly, uh, a civilian nuclear program. They want uh, the Americans to help them and to give them the go-ahead to establish their own civilian nuclear technology. And thirdly, uh, they want to purchase higher-end weapons from the United States. Now, before we look at these three objectives in greater depth, it's a question I asked last time. Um, doesn't it show at least, regardless of where Islam fits into this, and that's a heavy statement, but regardless of that for now, doesn't it tell us that the Saudis and bin Salman do have some level of strategic autonomy that maybe evaded Saudi rulers in the past? They're able to use uh, normalization with Israel to leverage pretty important or substantial uh, changes in the relationship with the United States. I think that a lot of it was answered in, in, in the last interview, but there's, but there's a few things that I would add here, hmm. which is to flip the suggestion that there is power in the strategic autonomy. Yeah. There is strategic autonomy in that they are chasing bin Salman, as, and bin Salman is not, as, is not chasing normalization in the manner that he was before. There is this disillusionment in bin Salman that it's not worth it at this moment in terms of the prize that's coming. 
joining the BRICS, for example, uh, the other day, you know, that surely is a slap in the face of the Americans that you're aligning yourself much more closely with Russia and China, for example. Yeah. But the Wall Street Journal has an article that suggests that the Saudi officials have indicated that all of these measures are simply to coax or threaten the Americans into actually coming back to this relationship and saying sorry and providing that security once more. It's not coming from a position of strength as much as it's coming from a position of somebody, a friend who's upset and saying, you don't love me anymore. I want you to love me again. Yeah. And if you don't love me, I'm going to go and marry somebody else yeah. instead. The it's, Chinese, yes. it's more from that perspective instead, because one of the things that's quite interesting in the Wall Street Journal is the Saudis have suggested that the news that the Chinese will build the nuclear facility, that the Saudis actually have the Koreans lined up to mm. build it. And that the news of the Chinese is to get the Americans to have a bit of fear and concern so the Americans will rush in and say, don't go to the Chinese. And that's why I think it was quite fascinating that even with the BRICS invitation, the, the UAE released a statement saying we're joining in 2024, while the Saudis said we're going to look at the invitation and assess its merits. And then this. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Decide whether we want to join BRICS or not. Mm -hmm. And there's only one reason they would do that, which is to send a message to the Americans that guys, I really don't want to be doing this. I really don't want to be going to the Chinese. My vision 2030 was never supposed to look like Shanghai. It's supposed to look like Miami, as Bin Salman said in his documentary. I want you guys, you're treating me bad. I want us to have a good relationship, but you guys need to get over your own obstacles first. And the reason why I say that with regards to whether he's using normalization, what is he using normalization for? Put yourself in Saudi's position. You are surrounded by Iran, Iranian, Iranian-backed militias in the north, Iran to the east and Houthis to the south. The Iranians have made you rehabilitate Assad into the Arab League. The Iranians have made you give concessions to the Houthis. The Iranians have made you reinvest in Iraq, knowing the money is going to go to the benefits of their militias and probably find its way back to Tehran. The Iranians have made you consider reinvesting in Syria so that they can start getting the economic benefit from Iran. And when the Iranian foreign minister goes to Riyadh to sit with you and you say to the Iranian foreign minister, okay, come on, I gave you all these concessions now. Do we have a truce? The Iranians say, wait, we have some more. We want to talk about Haqla Durra. We want to talk about the Durra gas field. Right now, you and the Kuwaitis are sharing it. We believe that you should step aside. We have 40% of the gas field. And the Kuwaitis, who only introduced the Saudis to the gas field as a partner in 2001 or 2000 for political and security purposes, in other words, to push back against the Iranians, 
the Kuwaitis are no longer sure the Saudis have their back mm -hmm. because the suggestion now is that bin Salman is turning a blind eye to the Iranian ship that's now exploring gas and, with, and taking gas out because bin Salman doesn't want to upset the Iranians and risk a re-eruption of conflict in which the missiles start attacking the Abqiq uh, oil facility or start targeting the Royal Palace of Riyadh or start targeting Jeddah in Formula One. Those missiles that made bin Salman go to Sana'a in the first place or send his ambassador to Sana'a in the first place to give the concessions to the Houthis in the first place. When we talk about strategic autonomy, the reason bin Salman is seeking a NATO-style involvement is because bin Salman says to himself, look, the Americans are not committed to my security. The Americans want to strike a deal with Iran. The Americans prefer the Iranians over us, especially the Democrats. Mm. I want to force the Americans into conflict with Iran by making a NATO-style agreement in which if one of the allies is attacked, America is obliged legally to go and attack the country that, and that's why the Americans don't want to give a NATO-style agreement with the Saudis because they know the aim is to attack Iran. So when you're talking about strategic autonomy, strategic autonomy implies that bin Salman is in a position where he's asserting strength. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the pursuit of normalization is coming from a position of weakness. Where bin Salman exerted strategic autonomy was in oil, when he squeezed Biden on the oil, on the gas prices, and made Biden come to Jeddah. But normalization doesn't fit into this spirit of strength. Normalization is bin Salman saying to himself, how can I get the Americans to take a strong stance against Iran? How can I get the Americans to protect me from an imminent threat that I'm struggling to handle? How can I get the Americans to protect me from a potential UAE-Iran alliance, from Qatar, which I still don't trust completely, even though the relations are improving? I feel quite isolated, so I want the Israelis to commit to my security. I want the Israelis to be the check through which I go to Washington and get them to protect me. In the same way that Hamid bin Jassim, and, and I said this in the last interview, but I encourage people to listen to it, to, to this uh, Hamad bin Jassim interview, 2018, November 2018, France 24, where Hamad bin Jassim is very blunt. He says, when Arabs go to Israel or talk to the Israelis, it's not because they like the Israeli. Bin Salman does not like the Israelis. It's because they believe that Israel is the key to the Congress and the White House. If you notice in the terms that you stated in your question, Bin Salman is normalizing ties with Israel, but in the terms that you stated, Israel is not offering anything tangible. It's about NATO security, American weapons, American defense. Bin Salman is talking to the Israelis to get the Americans to come and protect him instead. And that's why I think that for the Israelis, they're the ones pressuring the Americans to come to some sort of agreement. And that's why Netanyahu, when he says that Palestine is not the issue here, because Netanyahu knows why bin Salman is sitting opposite him. Mm. He knows that the Saudis are talking to him because they want Washington. So Netanyahu is sitting there and saying to the Americans, Bin Salman wants uh, security. They'll tell him he wants Palestine. Hey, give him enough weapons, he'll give up Palestine. Give him the NATO-style agreement, he'll give up Palestine. Mm. You, Blinken is telling me about Palestine, give concessions for Bin Salman. Blinken, you've misread the situation. What he wants is to raise the stakes. Instead of 20 weapons, give him 100. Instead of NATO-style agreement, give him three new military bases. And he'll forget Palestine in an instant. And he'll tell the Muslim world that Iran is threatening me. Iran has surrounded me. Iran has its militias firing at me. I have no choice but to get the Americans in, but to normalize ties with Israel. And it's not that I like the Israelis, it's that I needed them to get the Americans. You guys accepted it for Qatar, when Qatar did it. You had no problem because Qatar's media kept promoting 
Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamism and the like. Sincerely, I'm not saying Qatar did it necessarily for Machiavellian reasons. Mm. I think small state politics is, is, is very complex and difficult. I'm not making excuses, mm. but I'm saying that it, it, it's tough. I always say that everyone's a genius on the bench. When, you, when you're sitting in the substitutes and you're watching the game being played, it's very different from when you're playing center midfield on a pitch and you know it's, it's harder to see the passes that you're supposed to do. But the point here being is Bin Salman will say you accepted it for Qatar. UAE, many mashayikh are making excuses for the UAE, including mashayikh that we respect and value. Many mashayikh are making excuses for Morocco. And the king of Morocco is considered the senator of the Prophet Muhammad Surely he couldn't go wrong as well. Surely you can make an excuse for Saudi Arabia. And I think that the other argument that Bin Salman could present is one that's quite prevalent, which is at least I can go to Mecca, Medina. At least I can do Umrah. At least the holy sites are protected. At least I can get an easy visa to go to Umrah. At least I can still go pray in the mosque. Yes, there are raves or the like, but at least if I want to practice Islam, I can practice it. And Bin Salman might be able to pull it off with this marketing PR while the Palestinians are left to fend for themselves. So where do you place Saudi Arabia on, on the following spectrum? And I, I received a lot of emails and comments on your previous uh, discussion with us. So on the one side, you've got Saudi Arabia as the puppet client state of the United States. And then on the other extreme, you've got, you know, the master planner, the strategic planner, Mohammed bin Salman, and, and, you know, how he's leveraging the relationship between China and America. And there is some cunning plan there. Now, you dismiss both sides, it seems to me. So where do you then place Saudi Arabia on this spectrum? I think that bin Salman is demonstrating very capable statesmanship and strategic autonomy in the way that he makes the most of this very bad situation. So you may have now been able to buy your way into Hajj and Umrah with that statement, possibly. But, but, to, but to be honest, let's put it quite bluntly. Bin Salman, we said he's surrounded by Iran. Yes. He's normalizing with ties because he wants security. Yeah. That suggests that security-wise, he's struggling. When Erdogan went to visit him, if you notice, the Turks celebrated the deals with the UAE mm. because they were about investing in industries. But with Saudi, it was only about drones and bioreactors. Mm. All Saudi was interested in was security and weaponry. They wanted to be able to deploy those drones because they believed they're under security threat. All that indicates is Bin Salman is outsourcing security. And you don't do that unless you're in, unconvinced by your own capabilities and you believe that you're under an imminent threat, which is the threat that's coming from Iran. And he's talking to the Iranians because of this imminent threat coming from Iran. It's hard to argue that this is a position of strength. Mm. Where strategic autonomy comes in and where I separate it from the idea of strength, strategic autonomy suggests strength. Mm. What I mean by strategic autonomy is being able to play the options that are at your disposal, right. which is to be able to use oil to accelerate the rise in gas prices that makes Biden come to you in Jeddah and give you a fist bump and essentially try to say to you, I'm sorry for calling you a pariah. I beg you, please raise production so you can bring the oil price down. What I mean by strategic autonomy is that given the Americans, despite Biden saying sorry, the American companies are still not coming. Biden still shows his disdain on his face, mm. that Biden still drags his heels on key things that you're looking for, that Biden is still negotiating with the Iranians under the table, that Robert Malley, the envoy, is still engaging with the Iranians to try to find a deal that's going to come at your expense. Mm. Given that you, you've pressured Biden enough to get him to calm down, but not enough for him to actually make the concessions, you invite Xi Jinping to Riyadh. You go to BRICS. You say, I will go to BRICS. And not only will I go to BRICS, I will make it so that us and the UAE and the Iranians who I'm talking to 
the major oil powers, BRICS will now command a huge influence over oil policy that before was in your hands or in the hands of OPEC, over which you had significant influence before. Mm. The Americans still haven't reacted yet. So we're seeing Bin Salman use strategic autonomy to pull those levers. We've seen, if you look at Chinese investments over the past six months, we're August 2023, we're talking January 23 to August 2023. There's been a huge influx of Chinese investments, but in very limited sectors. It's in construction of energy facilities. It's in construction of things associated with energy, as opposed to areas of Vision 2030 that Bin Salman would prefer to reserve for American companies and for American vision when he manages to convince Biden to change track or when Trump becomes president, he's hoping Trump becomes president. And Trump says, you know what? Forget morals and values. Companies just go. There's huge money to be made. He's giving out checks of millions. He wanted to buy Kylian Mbappe from Paris Saint-Germain for 1 billion euros, 700,000 you salary package and 300,000 to Paris Saint-Germain. He's giving lucrative wages. Americans, footballers, why don't you leave the MLS and go play in Saudi Pro League instead? In other words, it's less about strength and more the strategic autonomy being one of Bin Salman is not bowing his head to the Americans. He's refusing. He's, he's fighting with the means that he has. Whether he's succeeding or not is a different issue. And that's why I differentiate with strength. Even in the response I gave to you last time, mm -hmm. Bin Salman is genius in deploying that strategic autonomy, in getting the UK to send him an invitation and having the UK policymakers saying, we don't know if he'll come to us because we don't know if we're strategically relevant anymore. That is power. When Bin Salman is now, everybody is chasing him, that is power. But if you look at the details of that power, they're not chasing Bin Salman because they like Vision 2030 or because they believe in it. They're chasing him because they're seeing the checks being given out from Riyadh. Mm. Is that strength? I don't know. Is that strategic autonomy? Yes. Is normalization for NATO-style strategic autonomy? Yes. Is it strength? I don't know. Mm. Is squeezing or Biden for oil strategic autonomy? Yes. Is it power? Yes. But is it strength in that Biden now is suddenly reversing all of the, 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 the disdain and the like that deters companies from going to Saudi Arabia? Has he reversed that? No. Is that strength? I don't know. And that's why I want to strike this particular distinction. Bin Salman, if I had to describe it, it's somebody who came to power, made a series of blunders, and has learned very quickly from those blunders. So whereas he started at zero and then found himself in negative, he's working his way back, certainly. Mm -hmm. Saudi today is a power that cannot be ignored. The talks with China are serious, but not serious enough to threaten the Americans. Saudis are still using China simply to poke the, the, the Americans or the like. Saudi still sees itself as a mid-power competing in between the two. But I think, and Saudis will be upset to hear this, I think that Bin Salman sees in Erdogan a model through which you can have relations with both, not be as strong as both, cooperate with both and still exert strategic autonomy that allows you to assert your interest. And I think one of the things that's quite fascinating is the US is no longer the hegemon in this world. Mm. A lot of events are happening where the US has to scramble. And I think Bin Salman in this context is taking advantage of the options available for him. Certainly he's demonstrating a, a masterful manner in deploying strategic autonomy, whether that constitutes strength, I, I wouldn't be able to say. I get that. So what does the United States then want from Saudi Arabia? And I read a, a really interesting piece by Thomas Friedman, who doesn't always get it right, but he talks about that one of the, so back to the normalization discussion, one of the, uh, one of the requirements from the United States is this China relationship including uh, there is, again, some discussion about um, 
the possibility of the clear of the oil payments being made in the Chinese yuan between Saudi Arabia and China rather than in the dollar, which is, of course, the standard in the world. So thus bypassing the dollar and possibly moving in the direction of de-dollarization. Uh, and the United States wants an end to that type of thinking. Um, what's, your, what's your view on that? I think that the US is certainly rattled by the idea that China could become an alternative to the US. Mm. I think that people are getting overexcited about the idea of China actually replacing the US. Take a map of the military bases in the region and you'll see it becomes abundantly clear China is not replacing the US anytime soon. Yeah. The US has military bases in key points. It's true that the Chinese are starting to build in Djibouti and other places as well, mm. but the US still remains the dominant military power in the region. Yeah. I think that the US are certainly rattled about the prospect that the Chinese could replace them at a time in which the US is no longer as eager for military interventions as it was before. There's a huge debate in the US now about why do we send our boys abroad to fight conflicts that have nothing to do with us. Mm. You've seen that, uh, I think Vivek, I, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce, I don't want to offend Robert Shwami. Robert yeah. for example, yeah. who's made his whole campaign or, or a lot of his campaign about, why should we go to Ukraine when we stand nothing to gain for nothing? Mm. Why, in his words in the Republican debate, he said, why do we say, I didn't watch the whole of it. I, don't, mm. I didn't watch the three hours, but I watched the highlights. Yes. That why, why should we send money to Ukraine when we should be sending it to our southern border on these invasions, you talk about the migrants and, yeah. and, and, and the like. Yeah. But the point here being is that the Americans are in a very deep soul-searching debate as to their role in the, in the global order today, as to whether the power that they were able to exert, not by ideas and values, but by military force, whether they should deploy that military force. And I think a lot of that has to do with them becoming under the false illusion that they became powerful by their values, mm. as opposed to they became powerful by their very brutal military force that they deployed to full effect with the nuclear bombs in, in Vietnam and the like. Mm. But the point here being is that the US are certainly rattled by it, but the US also believe that Bin Salman is lashing out, that he's upset with them, that he's angry with them, that this is a mess, a lot of it of their own making. And that's going to sound crude if we think about what happened to Khashoggi and some of these others, but, but I'm talking just crude politics, amoral politics, as in devoid of morality. The US believe that it was unnecessary to alienate Bin Salman to that extent, that Biden maybe perhaps shouldn't have rushed to call him a pariah that for all of Saudi's woes, they are just difficult allies that are necessary in order to achieve American objectives in the region. Mm. And that Bin Salman is therefore lashing out and that Bin Salman has given us enough signs that he wants to restore this relationship and repair it. And that the obstacle to it is us. We need to overcome our high horse and we need to come down off it and sort of go to Bin Salman and try to make amends. The reason I say that is because it is this attitude that means the Americans are convinced that Bin Salman will very readily wind down relations with China if they offer him what Bin Salman is looking for, if they protect him from Iran. So it's leverage. US may not give Saudi the NATO-style agreement, mm. but the US have understood the demand, not about that Saudi actually wants it, but the Saudi wants a greater Security. commitment to push back against yeah. the Iranians. Yeah. And the Americans truly believe, less so with the UAE, but certainly more with Saudi Arabia, that if Bin Salman can be satisfied in this regard, in the way the deal eventually comes out with the Houthis or the American situation in Iraq. We've seen the Americans now reasserting themselves in Iraq. In the way that perhaps Bin Salman, his bayraktas might give him greater confidence. That Bin Salman might say, you know what? China can't give me more than what the Americans give me anyway. 
investment is coming in from the Americans. Vision 2030. It, the reason I mentioned Miami is because it's Ben Salman's own words that he used in the documentary when he said, when you go to Miami and you come out, you have entertainment, you have et cetera. We want to build something like Miami. He didn't say Shanghai, didn't say Beijing, Beijing. He didn't say Chengdu. He didn't say Chongqing. He didn't say any of these places. He, he said, I want to build it like Miami. If Biden manages to send these trade delegations to Vision 2030, I ask everybody who's listening, do you think that Bin Salman sitting next to Elon Musk and sitting next to one of the, or Alibaba or, or the Chinese businessmen or, or, or the like, do you think he will choose the Chinese over Elon Musk or, over, or Amazon or the like? I hardly think so. And that's why I think that for Bin Salman, it's true that China is taking advantage of the opportunity, but I thought it very significant that Xi Jinping did not give a speech at the BRICS summit in which Saudi was invited. Putin did not attend in person. That may have been because of Ukraine. But I think there's, it also, it's also testament to how Russia and China view this expansion, which is that, look, BRICS is not an effective organization the way OPEC is. It's still a very loose alliance. Mm. We don't have many internal structures per se. Mm. That Saudi Arabia, given we're not wholehearted, we don't believe they're wholeheartedly committed to us and UAE, why should the Chinese premier give a speech celebrating their introduction? Why? And the politicization of the expansion was clear in the way Algeria was rejected. Algeria has more credentials to join BRICS than any of, but it appears that UAE and its allies joined UAE, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, all the like. Almost as if Xi Jinping is saying, look, there's a potential here for being an alternative and, and, and growth in these ties. Mm. But I still think that the Saudis would throw me out the window in an instant if the Americans come back with a full package, if the Republicans come and say, we're ready to commit to you wholeheartedly. And I still think the Saudis are at a stage where and that's why I mentioned about the investments of the Chinese investment. If you see where they're going, they're not going in sectors that are irreversible. They're not going in sectors where China can entrench itself in Saudi Arabia. Those industries are off limits to the Chinese. It looks like bin Salman is giving the Chinese enough for them to at least keep the bait, but not enough for the Americans to say this is a genuine turn. And the US genuinely believe bin Salman will turn his back on China if they give him what he wants. So Sami, can I ask you about then the US place or position in the Middle East today? And it's a... A common uh, talking point now in, in Western political circles that there's been a retreat from the Middle East, from the Obama times onwards, and America no longer focuses on the Middle East, and its focus now is, is almost wholly on the Far East in China and, and the rise of China. Um, where do you, or how do you rate uh, America's place currently in that region? I think it's unprecedentedly weak. Mm. I think the US is no longer the major power that it once was. It's certainly the major power in terms of it's still number one, but it's not number one in the way that it was running away with the game like it was before. Mm. I think the US is behind on many of the issues that are taking place in the region. If you look at the Yemen file, it's firmly in the Saudi hands. The US are playing catch up with regards to Saudi on Yemen. And I think that's why the US envoy is always having to shuttle back and forth to Muscat. He goes to Muscat to talk to the Saudis as well, not just because he feels himself that he's locked out of a lot of the issues that are taking place in Yemen. If you look at Sudan, for example, it's not the US leading the initiative, it's Saudi and the UAE now leading the initiative, and the US sort of adapting here and there, listening, trying to find its policy. I think when you look at Iraq, for example, we see the Turks now coming in via the north through the Kurdish areas, and the US now having to adapt. If you look at Syria, it's the US struggling to adapt. I think that Whereas before the U.S. had an iron grip on a lot of these issues, I think the U.S. hold is not as strong as it once was. And that's not because it's become weak. It's because the U.S. came to this conclusion that it could still bulldoze its view on everybody else 
And as a result, it upset too many allies at the same time. Before, Turkey would be upset, but Saudi would be happy. Before, Saudi would be upset, but Qatar, UAE, Kuwait, all these nations would be happy. Mm. The US is in a position where Qatar is upset, UAE is upset, Saudi is upset, Turkey is upset, Kuwait is upset, Bahrain is upset, Egypt's upset, Algeria is upset, Morocco's upset, Libya's upset. There's not a single nation in the region that is happy with the US. And all of these nations, instead of the US trying to appease them, albeit it's doing it somewhat to Algeria and the like, all of these nations are suddenly they went through a period where they were sort of in no man's land and then they said, okay, given the US is not taking collectively taking us seriously, let's pursue alternatives or try to come to agreements between ourselves. And that's why I think that while Bin Salman looks to the US as the ideal partner, I think the exertion of autonomy that we're seeing, albeit it's, it's always existed, I think the manner we're seeing it implemented today has a lot to do with this idea that one, the U.S. has a vision of the Middle East that contradicts the vision of, of the Allies. By that, I mean specifically that the U.S. sees Iran as the new U.S. ally. It wants to deal with the Iranians. The Democrats want Iran to become a U.S. ally. They're ready to make concessions to the Iranians. And the Saudis and the UAE believe that it's going to come at their expense, that the Americans have come to this conclusion that the Arabs are not as good allies as the Iranians are, that we back the Arabs and they still weren't able to push back against Iran. Iran today is in Syria, it's in Iraq, it's in Lebanon, it's in, in, this in Yemen. When the Iranians want to spoil something, they can easily do it through Hezbollah, through Houthis, through Hashd al-Shaabi. There is a video that went viral of a refugee in Norway who did a video bragging about how he fought with the Hashd al-Shaabi in Iraq on Syrian territory against those who wanted to rise up against the Assad. Another example of the links that Iran has between these different nations the Americans say, look, if you can't beat them, join them. We had historical relations with Iran. We were good friends with the Shah. Khomeini came and ruined it. There's no reason why we can't establish new relations with Iran. And it's this particular note that makes the other allies in the Gulf say that if the Americans have this vision that's against our interests, that's going to come at our expense, mm. why are we sitting here waiting for the Americans to screw us over? Let's start pursuing alternatives. Let's talk to China. Let's come to a truce with Iran and then later we can push back the, 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 the Houthis and the others later on. And I think that's why the Americans have become weak. In that one, the Americans don't want to deploy military power anymore because domestically, the people aren't tolerating the continued deaths of their soldiers abroad. They're asking questions and it's become a hot topic. But Obama talked about winding down. Trump said, why are we fighting wars that we have no interest in? Anybody who reads the piece by James Jeffrey, the former US envoy to Syria, he talks about his interactions with Trump where the generals would say Syria is important for US interests, and Trump would say, why the hell are we there? I don't understand why American troops have to be in Syria. Mm. So you can see that it's not just the Democrat issue. The Democrats and the Republicans are increasingly saying that we, why are we deploying military force abroad? And that suggests that the Americans are no longer willing to deploy their military power as they once were. And the second, their political alternative is one that upsets everyone in the region. So collectively, they're all starting to talk between themselves and talk to China. And I think that's what I mean by America is becoming weak. It's not weak because it lacks resources. It's weak because it no longer has a desire and its political vision doesn't align with its allies mm. and it's alienated them all at once. And now it finds itself in a, in a, in a difficult position. So Sami, let's turn to Turkey. Um, despite what we led to believe, Turkey has already normalized relations with Israel. I mean, this is pre-Erdogan. But Erdogan has intensified that normalization process. So I suppose my question is, why is it good for Erdogan, or at least why does Erdogan not get the level of 
animus or anger from the global Muslim community for normalizing relations. Yet we accuse Mohammed bin Salman of um, uh, of uh, cheating the Ummah by, by this normalization process. I think that's a valid criticism and, and a valid argument that's often made, particularly with it, at a time in which Erdogan has invited the Israeli president who's gone to Ankara. He tried to invite Netanyahu. Netanyahu didn't go because he was in hospital. He, needed, he had an issue with his heart uh, because Erdogan is trying to, they're discussing a new pipeline. Certainly there is this expansion of ties and trade between Turkey and Israel, which does suggest the idea, why is it halal for Erdogan and haram for Mohammed bin Salman? I think the reality has more to do with, one, how Palestinians perceive the reasons why Erdogan is doing it versus how people perceive Mohammed bin Salman or the reasons Mohammed bin Salman is doing it. And I think one of the things that's worth noting here is if you look at the way Netanyahu approaches normalization with the UAE or with Saudi Arabia compared to how he approaches Erdogan, there is a clear difference. With the UAE, he approaches it as if he truly believes there is a friendship that is blossoming. He believes that the UAE are sincere in promoting normalization. And there is this sense that they are becoming friends with one another. If not Netanyahu, then at least the Israelis and the UAE. Mm. There is a sense that Netanyahu, when he talks about the Saudis, he, for example, uh, came out in a video thanking the Saudis for allowing a, a Israeli plane to emer make an emergency landing in Jeddah. There is this sense that Netanyahu is seeking a warm friendship with Mohammed bin Salman. But when it comes to Erdogan, Netanyahu is very blunt. Netanyahu says... So the Israeli Netanyahu says that Erdogan comes seeking my friendship when he's weak, but calls me Hitler when he's strong. Mm. The, in the implication that Netanyahu is suggesting is that I know Erdogan despises me. I know Erdogan would love to see Israel ruined. I know that Erdogan would love to see the Palestinians retake Al-Aqsa or the like. And he's only coming to me because he lacks the strength to do so. And I think that view or that opinion amongst many of the Muslims is what allows room for people to make excuses, whether justified or unjustified is irrelevant, to make excuses for Erdogan because they believe that it's more a case of Erdogan lacks the strength rather than a genuine desire for Erdogan to pursue ties with Israel. And I think that you can strike the comparison in terms of, you can see it even in the manner in which they try to project their identities, the Turkish identity and the Saudi identity mm. in the Muslim world itself, which suggests where their true convictions lie. You can see, for example, in Turkey, we've seen that the government, we're talking about government-sponsored initiatives, the government has funded series such as Erturul, such as Alp Arsalan, such as Barbaros, such as Rumi, such as uh, uh, all these other different series that are designed to re-imbue the Turkish identity with some sort of Islam. At the time of recording, we're seeing a heightened issue of racism towards Syrians or the like. But there is an argument that I think is very legitimate and justified which is that the lashing out against Syrians is less an expression of racism towards Syrian as much as it's a lashing out by secular Turks of the way the Turkish identity is changing. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is there is an equivalent video of an area, I think it's Kojaile or, or, or another place, where a Turkish woman is shouting at a hijabi and demanding to know first if she's Syrian or Turk. And when the hijabi says she's a Turk, she still gets lambasted and gets told we don't dress like this here in Turkey, suggesting that what these racists are really upset about is not the Syrians being there, but that the fact the Syrians have found a haven in Turkey, the fact that Muslims are becoming attracted to Turkey, is an indication that Erdogan has shifted the identity of Turkey from one that is very nationalist and shifting it more towards something that is Islamic. 
Contrast that with what the Saudi government is funded. Many people will have seen the video. If they haven't seen it, they can just Google Iggy Azalea in Riyadh. She was in Riyadh uh, at the time of recording, one week before the time of recording. On the 25th of August, she was in Riyadh at a concert, singing her lyrics in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia, in the land of the two holy mosques, in the land of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, who came with the wahi, who came with Islam, who came with the deen. Iggy Azalea sings her song in which she says, God, bring your prophets and bow down to the goddess. And she's dressed in a very raunchy way and she's twerking on stage or the like. But this is a government funded event. And this is also part of Vision 2030. We discussed some of the other measures in the, in the previous podcast. Yeah. But when you look at what identities these two are pushing, the identities or the symbolism or the priority of the symbolism indicates where the hearts truly lie in that Erdogan may have dealings with Israel, and I'm not justifying it. I'm somebody who regularly criticizes Erdogan's approach to Israel, and I think it's really sad because, in my opinion, the only reason Erdogan is doing it is because he fears economic reprisals, meaning that the Turks might vote him out. What Erdogan is more concerned about is the Turkish vote, and he believes the Turks are willing to accept normalization in exchange for economic benefit. I think that's where the crux of the issue, it's less Israel than Erdogan. But the idea of the government-supported symbolism indicates where their hearts lie. Mm. So it, it's true that Erdogan has ties with Israel. He's negotiating with Netanyahu. Recently, when he invited Netanyahu, he invited Mahmoud Abbas as well. The reason he invited Mahmoud Abbas was simply to say, look, I'm inviting Netanyahu, but the Palestinians have no problem with it. The reason Mahmoud Abbas went, despite knowing he was a political tool used to justify Netanyahu's visit, is because Mahmoud Abbas is aware that for all of Erdogan's antics with Israel, he remains popular amongst the Palestinians because the Palestinians believe that for all of Erdogan's antics, underneath all of those layers is a sincere desire to see the Palestinians succeed and the like. Mm -hmm. So the direct answer to your question is the popular perception is that Erdogan deals with Israel, Qurhan, like he hates doing it, but he's forced to do so by political circumstances. Even if we criticize it, you cannot deny that he feels that hatred. Whereas Saudi Arabia and the UAE, there is a sense, whether it's correct or not, that they're doing so because they genuinely don't care about the Palestinians and they're looking for some sort of political benefit or gain. The final point that's worth mentioning is this, which is that there are many similarities between Turkey and Saudi's pursuit of normalization of ties with Israel in the sense that they want to assert this strategic autonomy or strategic power. But the reason why Turkey is so successful where Saudi Arabia is not, particularly when you think that Saudi over the years has written many checks for opposition movements, they've uh, hosted many opposition politicians in the past, they've done a lot. The reason why is because in, in addition to the resources that they deploy, Erdogan's Islamic soft power, and it's undeniably Islamic, there is no indication that suggests otherwise. Even the Turks who criticize him, criticize him for this Islamic uh, uh, identity foreign politics that allows him to intervene in Libya, intervene in Azerbaijan, to talk about intervening in Mali, in all these Muslim areas. It's that soft power that means that even though Turkey is weaker than France or the US in resources, it's able to, to, uh, to fight at the same weight or the same weight level because the soft power it evokes in those societies means there is a haven through which Turkey can rapidly develop ties with Somalia, with Somalian politicians, with a Somalian defense minister, with Mali defense minister, set up Turkish military bases because the local population doesn't see Turkey as a colonizer in the way they see the French as a colonizer, as a result of the Islamic Brotherhood that Erdogan at least publicly preaches. How much of this is Erdogan utilizing Islam cynically and how much of this is a sincere attempt 
to reorient Turkish policy towards Islam. I note that during the period, uh, the frozen period of relations between Egypt and Turkey, Erdogan courted many of the Muslim Brotherhood members. Uh, even those members began um, uh, studios and began broadcasts in Turkey. Once the uh, relationship was unfrozen, once the relationship had once again uh, become strong and warm and diplomatic, uh, he clamped down on these and, and in fact ordered many of these Islamic Brotherhood people to, to leave Turkey. I mean, that seems like someone who is utilizing, it's a Islam rather than someone who is sincerely uh, uh, trying to reorient Turkey in an Islamic in an Islamic way. I think that when you, people, there are two ways to approach this. The first is people tend to look at Erdogan from 2002, not from 1920s when the Turkish Republic was established and the Ottoman Caliphate fell. The reason why I think there's a distinction between the two is because if you look at it from when Erdogan started in 2003, there's a lot of argument for pragmatism. When you look at it from 1920, then Erdogan becomes the product of a widespread Muslim Islamic movement that sought to drive out Ataturk's influence and push back against the secular influence to break those chains where military coups would take place on Adnan Menderes, who restored the Adhan to the Arabic language, mm. on Erbakan, for example, who was considered to be re-Islamizing the state. Mm. Erdogan is not the product who came in a vacuum. He's a product of the jihad and the, and the efforts of all of these Muslim movements to deliver these Muslims to power. Right. And that's why I think that Erdogan being part of that, Erdogan is a symbol, albeit maybe a flawed symbol, mm. of the Islamic conviction of the Turkish society that sought to shake off the shackles of Ataturk. The second point that's worth noting is when Turkey took in 5 million Syrian refugees, every Turkish political analyst said it is political suicide for Erdogan. Erdogan is incurring the wrath of Saudi Arabia, of UAE. He's isolating Turkey from those who have money at a time in which we've got tensions with the US. It makes no political sense to take in these people and take in these refugees. Mm. And Erdogan lost the Istanbul mayoral election 2019 because of the refugees. He lost the Ankara mayoral election because of the issue of the refugees. And still he would not budge on that policy. Not only that, he would insist that they should not be called refugees. They should be called guests because he tried to strike the example of Muhajirin and Ansar of those who came. I don't think you do that unless you have some sort of conviction. Mm. Moreover, the way you see, and you've done the podcast as well with Thinking Muslim about Western Muslims going to make hijra to Turkey. The reason they resonate with Turkey and why Western-born Muslims are moving to Turkey is because they see and resonate with a message that is coming out of Turkey that Erdogan himself is facilitating and pushing. In that if we focus on the details of the policies, it's true you can be upset with a lot of what Erdogan is doing and legitimately so, but you cannot deny the trend that is taking place in terms of what's going forward. In terms of the crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood, and, I, and, 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 and it's very upsetting, primarily as somebody born and raised in London, for example, if it happened here, it wouldn't. We, there is a judiciary rule of law. The government cannot intervene in these things. There is free speech. I think there's something to celebrate with regards to rule of law. But I think the way that Erdogan did it was less about clamping down in the way we see Mohammed bin Salman clamping down on a Twitter account with eight followers that put out a few tweets and now the owner of the account or alleged owner is now going to be executed. I think this was more about Turkey going to the Muslim Brotherhood and saying, guys, I'm surrounded. 
The Americans are pressuring me very hard. They almost supported 2016 coup on me. They're really pressuring me. Europe is pressuring me. Russia is pressuring me. The Saudis and UAE have cut off funding for my economy. My economy is crashing because I made a mistake with regards to policies and interest rates or the like, which is a legitimate mistake to make. Erdogan made it. It is what it is. Uh, I have issues in Libya where I'm being threatened. I can't control my allies very well. I've got Russia upset with my Central Asia policy. It sent its troops to Kazakhstan to rescue the regime, to send a message to all the other regimes that you might be thinking of going towards Turkey, but I'm king of this region. Yeah, Muslim Brotherhood, I need a breather. I need a space. I'm stuck here. I need a Hudaybiyah. I'm not comparing it to Hudaybiyah. Mm. I'm saying the argument that he might have given. I need a Hudaybiyah. I need... And, and, I, and I'm really, really sorry about this and I don't want to do it, but I need you guys to be quiet. I need you guys either to leave Istanbul or be yeah. quiet. And they turned around and said, okay, thank you for the good times and it is what it is. No, Jazakallah. Okay, so we've, we've talked about uh, normalizing with Israel. We've talked about Israel's perspective. We've talked about the perspective of the United States and Saudi Arabia. But of course, in this discussion, we haven't talked about the Palestinians and um, it is often the case today that when broadcasters, when even Muslims talk about Israel uh, and Palestine, Palestinians are left out of the picture. What of the Palestinians and their desire uh, to return back to their land and to rid uh, their land of this oppression that they currently face? Where do you place the Palestinian cause? I think that talking about the, the Palestinians in this dynamic, and you're right, and I accept the rebuke, and, and I think anybody listening to this should accept the rebuke and that we haven't considered the, the Palestinians and where they lie in all this. I think that first it's important to talk about the Palestinian Authority and to talk about the political parties that are engaged in, in Palestine in and of themselves. Primarily because according to the Wall Street Journal, Mohammed bin Salman is going to receive a senior delegation of the Palestinian Authority in which he's expected to say to them quite bluntly, I want to normalize ties with Israel. I need you guys to celebrate loudly. In exchange, I will give you millions in support. I'll restore the funding that I stopped giving in 2021 mm -hmm. when you guys were, when, the, when, the, when everyone, the normalization tide was really being pushed. I will restore that money. I also need you guys to take the arms off the other resistance groups that are frustrating Netanyahu's attempts at annexing the West Bank. But I will line your pockets up with money and I need you guys to celebrate loudly. And I'm also seeking the custodianship of the Al-Aqsa Mosque to take it from the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan so that I become me, Muhammad bin Salman, who brings Iggy Azalea to Twerk and Riyadh, who brings these raves to Jeddah, who brings these Red Sea festivals, who allows alcohol at our official Saudi representation at the Cannes Film Festival, who is allowing all of these raves and lowering loudspeakers, the volume of loudspeakers of the Quran, who is kicking out imams who criticize my entertainment policies and the like, who's executing people for tweets. I, Muhammad bin Salman, want to be the custodian of the Holy Mosque of Mecca, Medina, and of Al-Aqsa as well. And the fact that the Palestinian Authority is sending a senior delegation to hear about this offer from bin Salman, knowing full well that he's doing it in order to normalize ties with Israel, speaks volumes as to the state of the Palestinian Authority and where they feel they lie politically. In their defense, the Oslo Accords that were signed in 1993 meant that the Palestinian Authority, given it was squeezed, felt that they should rein in the resistance in order to keep Israel off its back. Israel decided to renege on its agreement and continue to keep coming in in terms of trying to annex the West Bank. But I think the Palestinians, insofar as the Palestinian Authority are concerned, are trying to, uh, they are going to be used by bin Salman as the tool through which we talked about this earlier in, the, in this conversation, mm -hmm. where bin Salman will say, Muhammad Jalal, you're angry with me about normalization, but Sahib al the one who is affected by 
the cause. The Palestinian Authority themselves are celebrating this normalization as something that is good. And your Erdogan normalizes with ties with Israel anyway. It doesn't mean I'm doing it very badly. I think with Hamas, they have a more difficult situation in that the priority of normalization, Netanyahu will demand from bin Salman that he really presses the Palestinian Authority to take the weapons of the resistance, to rein in those resistance movements so that Netanyahu can actually continue to annex the West Bank. We spoke earlier how uh, Netanyahu is unlikely to give up on his desire to annex the West Bank. Mm. He may do like the UAE in that he delays it, but he's intent on annexing it because he believes on gaining as much territory as possible. I think though for the ordinary Palestinians, I think they've lost a lot of faith already in the organizations that are supposed to represent them, yeah. such as the Palestinian Authority themselves. I also think that a lot of the gains that have been made from the Palestinian Authority are from the ordinary or, or gains on the Palestine cause are from the Palestinians themselves. If you look at, for example, the US today is debating, why are we giving money to the Israelis? Why are we giving funding to Netanyahu, who is a far-right government? Americans are now talking about things that would have been taboo just a few years back. And that's as a result of the Palestinians and their social media and showing the reality. And let me give you an example. Mm. I, I told you earlier about Iggy Izzeli and Riyadh twerking. Those who are listening to it will say, no, I need to find the source. But when you see the video of it, there is this sense of shock that this is happening in the holy mosques. Yeah. In other words, hearing about it and seeing it are two different things. The, the world's population used to hear about the Palestinian cause, that homes are being demolished and the like. But when they saw it on Instagram, when they saw it on social media, that's what evoked Nicholas Kristof and these others to write in the New York Times and other papers that we need to revise our relationship with Israel because it's too vile what we're seeing with regards to the social media or the like. I do think that also when we're looking at the Palestinians in terms of the reality is they have no choice. Their homes are being demolished. They're being kicked out of their land. They're being forced into tents. They will continue to be made into refugees. Those who visit Palestine will notice that when they cross the Jordanian border, when they go to Al-Aqsa, when they go to Bethlehem or Nablus or Haifa or some of these other places, you can see the settler encampments growing. You can see them everywhere. Mm. The reality is they're under a heavy situation in which they have no choice but to continue pushing back. So normalization may bring peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia, but it won't bring peace for the Palestinians, suggesting that what we're seeing instead is Saudi Arabia securing its gains and running away from the cause, but the Palestinians left to fend for themselves. The final point that's worth noting is this. The Palestinians have been fighting for over 80, 90 years now for their right to return to their land, to return to their homes, not to take revenge on the Jewish population, for their right to their land and their homes and the right to a state in which they coexist peacefully. Unlike the Israelis who are seeking a state that is ethno-nationalist, ethnocentric and the like. I do think that where the Palestinians are succeeding is popping this bubble. So for example, when Ben Gvir, the, the, you mentioned that you called him the Klukas clan earlier and his views are very much like the Klukas clan. When he goes on TV and says to an Arab journalist that my wife's right to walk through Sumeria and Jericho is more important than your right to freedom, when they're complaining about the checkpoints and they're complaining about the restricted freedom of movement. Many Israeli liberals were shocked by Ben Gvir's statement. Mm. But here's the question. Why would you be shocked about Ben Gvir when all he did was describe the de facto situation of Israel since 1948? Mm. All Ben Gvir did, did was describe the system of apartheid that didn't come about with the right-wing government of Netanyahu mm. that's been there since 1948. Ehud, Olmer and all these other guys before him, they implemented this, mm. suggesting that in Israel, 
there is this sense of trance or hypnotic trance where even the Israelis have been desensitized to the reality of the apartheid regime. And the greatest proof of that is these protests taking place against the judiciary in that they're trying to protect their democracy, as they call it, from Netanyahu's interference of a judiciary that legalizes the demolition of Palestinian homes, that legalizes the theft of Palestinian lands, that turfs Palestinians from their homes and gives the court says this is legitimate, showing that for them they see it as democratic, but they've been so desensitized to apartheid that they cannot see the fallacy of calling their protest pro-democracy in that they don't come out to protest apartheid, they come out to protest a judiciary that only affects them. But the point here being is where the Palestinians are succeeding mm. is in dispelling this bubble, dispelling this hypnotic trends. Right. And I think that the Palestinians, even if the Palestinian Authority is used in order to push the Saudis or welcome the Saudi normalization, mm. I think the Palestinians have no choice but to continue as they are and maybe a new leadership will emerge. Exactly. Okay. And one final question for you, Sami. How important is Palestine? How important is Al-Quds for the Muslim Ummah? I think that first and foremost, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself in the Quran, in the beginning of Surah Al-Isra, بَعْدْ بِسْمِ The point here being that, that when you look at, for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describing Al-Aqsa and saying بَارَكْنَا حَوْلَهُ That we have blessed the areas around it. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts it in the same sentence as Masjid al-Haram in the Kaaba, uh, of the Kaaba itself. And we know that, for example, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in many ahadith, the Prophet sallallahu has talked about the sanctity of the Kaaba. The Al-Aqsa being the place where the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu ascended the heavens. It's the gateway to heaven where he led the prophets uh, in prayers. I think that it's, it, the, the religious sanctity is, is there. Also, in the same surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about, for example, وَآتَيْنَا مُوسَى الْكِتَابَ وَجَعَلْنَهُ هُدًا لِبَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ أَلَّا تَتَّخِذُوا مِن دُونِ وَكِيلَ ذُرِّيَةً مَنْ حَمَلْنَا مَعْ So in the following ayahs, Allah links Al-Aqsa to Musa السلام, and to Nuh, suggesting it's been blessed since almost the dawn of time itself. The second point that's worth noting is that Palestine or Al-Aqsa itself, it's not just important in terms of its standing with regards to its, the, the, the Isra al-Mi'raj, but also in the fact that the Palestinians have been driven from their homes. If you notice when Allah describes the Sahaba of the Prophet Muhammad he talks them, those who've been driven from their homes. And Allah repeats it in many areas over and over, suggesting in the sight of Allah, it's a crime of such a huge gravity to be illegitimately driven from your homes. And we know that the Prophet Muhammad in Khutbat al-Wada'a, in the final Hajj, when he gives a statement, he says, That your wealth, honor, and property, and blood is sacred upon each of you as the sacred nature of this month, of this land, suggesting that the idea of a people, whether it's the Uyghurs or the Rohingya or the Palestinians being driven from their homes is sacred like the sanctity of the Kaaba in the holiest of months, in the holiest of pilgrimage itself. Allah describing just how horrible a crime it is to be driven from your homes. And I think this is why there is this element of resonance towards this oppression that's taking place in Palestine, in that this idea that the Palestinian was living in their home and then the Jewish refugees who were put under the Holocaust by the Europeans, persecuted by the Europeans, gassed by the Europeans, slaughtered by the Europeans, in the Inquisition slaughtered by the Europeans, driven out of Europe by the Europeans, 
came to Palestine, to the Muslim lands, where the Muslims said to them, we have a rich history of coexistence. We have a rich history of living side by side. We did it in Andalusia, which is objectively considered the epitome of what coexistence looks like under Muslim rule. Come and live side by side with us. The Muslims welcomed the Jewish population into the lands and the Zionist project convinced many of the Jewish population at the time, not all of them, but many of them, to lift a gun, go and turf the Palestinian out of their homes, seize their land, seize their homes, and put them into refugee camps. The idea being that we took in people as a guest and agreed to live with them side by side, and they decided instead to take the house from underneath us and kick us all the way out. Not only that, the reason Palestine means so much is because there is this glaring shock that instead of the world coming to an agreement that this is an apartheid regime that is set on oppressing the Palestinians, we see instead an, a coordinated approach from the international community to legalize the illegality, to say, okay, Israel may have taken these lands and stolen these lands and committed ethnic cleansing and driven the Palestinians out. But because we like them better than these backward Arab Muslims, let's discuss not about how to get the Palestinians to return to their lands. Let's talk about how much theft can we legalize as part of a two-state solution. We don't want coexistence. And the sad reality is that even those who are sympathetic to the Palestinians don't want to see rights of return, such as Bernie Sanders. He was asked in an interview in Al Jazeera where he sympathized with the Palestinians. And then Dina Takaruri says to him, uh, but, you know, one state solution, let's all live together. And Bernie Sanders says, no, 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 that, 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 that would mean the end of Israel. The point here being is, and, and the reason they don't want it is because they believe that in a majority state where the Arabs are majority, the premiership would go to the Palestinians, the presidency would go to the Palestinians. So I think what it means more is that as a people, not just Muslims, but ordinary people, in their inclination towards justice, it's glaring. This is an apartheid like you used to read about in South Africa. This is colonization like you read about in the French books. When we used to read it as children, we used to think, how did the world operate where these injustices were allowed to take place? And we see it with our own eyes. What the reason Palestine means so much is one, because of its religious sanctity with regards to its status amongst the prophets, and it's mentioned in the Quran. Two, because of the people being driven out of their homes, the idea being that they should have the right to return to their homes. Mm. And three, this idea that instead of the world concurring that they have a right to return, the world is instead saying to the oppressed, while the oppressor is taking more lands, while the oppressor continues to kill the Palestinians and take more lands, the world is going to the oppressed and telling them, listen, we're never going to let you get your land back. We want you to accept to live in this refugee camp and we want you to allow this theft and legalize that theft itself. I think that when it comes to the Palestinian cause, the final thing that's worth mentioning is this. Palestine reflects the human consciousness of resistance. The fact that despite everything that has happened, the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing, the slaughtering or the like, the Palestinians continue generation after generation fighting for their cause, suggesting that the human spirit doesn't die. And I think one thing that every Muslim should celebrate as well is this idea that the Palestinian cause remains rooted in the Islamic conscience because it is everything to do with morality. When Ali Ezzet Begovic, the Bosnian president, was asked, they said to him, you keep preaching this democratic state where the Croats, Serbs and Bosnians live together. This European tolerance of yours. And Ezzet Begovic says, wait a minute, this isn't a European tolerance that makes me call for this. This is an Islamic tolerance. The European tolerance is the tolerance of two world wars, the Holocaust, the acceptance of a Serbian genocide because you're scared of a Muslim majoritarian state emerging in the heart of Europe. My tolerance comes from Islam that tells me to respect Ahl al-Kitab. And one of the, the greatest pronouncements of this is that at the end of the Bosnian war, when they asked Ezzet Begovic, what is the most striking symbolism that, 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 that strikes you? 
He said, notice how many minarets the Croats and Serbs destroyed. I challenge you to find a single church that the Muslims destroyed. Suggesting how, and this is why I link it straight to the Palestinian cause, the idea that it reflects, it embodies the morality and consciousness of the Muslim Ummah. That's why it means so much for the Muslims. That's why it means so much. It's less about the idea of the Muslimness of Al-Aqsa and more about the idea of justice and more about the idea that Allah's law already achieved the coexistence, it can be achieved again in Jerusalem. And the final point I will say on this is, is this, in that there are many of the Jewish population, the reason they fear a one-state solution is because they fear revenge. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, when he told the Sahaba to go and take their homes back, they said, he said, once you take your homes back, لا تعتدوا, do not go beyond that. Take what is yours by right and do not transgress for Allah loves not the transgressors. The Muslims are not driven by revenge when it comes to the issue of Palestine. They're driven by justice. Restore the right of return. Restore the land. Restore the homes and let's live on this land together because the way that Europe persecuted you is not the way the Muslims persecuted you in Andalusia and Baghdad and these other places. The Muslims are higher than that in terms of their akhlaq. And that's why I think that when it comes to this issue of Palestine in and of itself, not only does the resistance reflect the Islamic principles, but the goal that we're seeking to achieve is one that is noble, one that is coexistence under Islamic rule, because the Islamic rule is the one that guaranteed the coexistence in a way Europe has never been able to demonstrate or prove. Sami Hamdi, it's uh, been great to have you with us once again. Jazakallah khair for your time. Thank you very much. Jazakallah. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.